The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Indeed it does, and right now on Fast, Regional Revival. Banks bouncing back as First Citizens buys a big part of Silicon Valley Bank. The Dow and the S&P rebounding as well, but all this comes as the recession chorus grows louder. So where do we go from here? We'll debate that one. Plus, China's charm offensive. Beijing meeting with a host of major U.S. CEOs, Apple's Tim Cook among them, trying to make them and the world feel welcome on the mainland. Is this a real policy pivot or just a PR spin? And later, Lyft riding higher. The company announcing a new CEO just in the last half hour. So we've got an exclusive with David Risher, the incoming head honcho, later this hour. Welcome, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson, in for Melissa Lee. And this is Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site. On the desk tonight, Steve Grasso, Karen Feinerman, Dan Nathan, Julie Beal. Welcome, everybody. Good to be Welcome with Tyler. you. Welcome, Tyler. Good to nice have you. Nice to be with you. Julie, good to see you. And we begin with a resilient start to the week for the markets. The Dow rising for a third consecutive day, up about 195 points. The index now within spitting distance. I don't really love that, that uh, phrase. But, <laughs> well, it's too late but to worry about that now, I said, it, I said it. There you go. Of erasing its losses uh, for the month. The S&P also higher with energy and financials leading the way. NASDAQ, the only major index in the red, but it was off the lows of the day and only off about a half a percent. The strength coming as bank stocks continue to rebound money centers and regionals, uh, both higher after First Citizens finalized a deal to buy the assets of the collapsed lender Silicon Valley Bank. Shares of Bank of America seeing their best day since October. Yet not everyone thinks the strength is going to last. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson in a note today uh, warning that a severe deterioration in earnings will drag markets lower, saying we think guidance is looking more and more unrealistic and equity markets are at greater risk of pricing in much lower estimates ahead. So have the markets gotten a little too complacent, maybe ahead of themselves with all the risks that are out there? Let's talk about that and more. Dan, what do you say? Well, listen, when you look at the measures of volatility in the stock market, there's saying complacent, right? And if you look at those same measures of bond market volatility in the Treasury market, they're saying something very different. I think they're speaking to a heightened sense or a greater potential of a recession um, at some point this year. And you just mentioned it. It seems like we entered this year and the stock market got off to this great start because I think people had downshifted their recession expectations to a soft or no landing. And I think what's happened with this kind of banking crisis here um, is it just kind of, you know, accelerated the potential for a weaker economy. We know that credit conditions 
have tightened here. We know that access to credit is going to be harder. And it's interesting because one of the um, equity market indices that closed higher today was the Russell 2000. We know that there's a lot of smaller financial institutions in that, and they got a little bit of a bounce. But that has really underperformed over the last month and a half or so, down about 12%. So to me, I actually think that the equity market has probably not gotten the memo yet. I think it's about to do that when we get into Q1 earnings season in a few weeks. It does, Karen, feel as though the soft landing or no recession crowd has gone a little quieter in, over the last six weeks. Yeah, it or does. Maybe the, last, I mean, maybe the last two, three months, really. I don't know. I feel like not that long ago, just yeah. pre-SVB, yeah. that it seemed like maybe a soft landing was, was doable. I mean, I, I don't know. I guess clearly this bank thing is a big problem in that even if we're even if this is it and i i don't know if it is or isn't even if this is it you can't help but think that lending will really be you know a lot tighter and, and that is a a suppressor um and and that has tightened everything for the financial system and and that brings it back to the fed so how much more work does the because the fed had said that they had more work to do but if you think that this bank issue, I, I don't know whether we're calling it a collapse, a crisis, whatever the term is du jour, that's done some tightening to, to, to Dan's point. That's going to weaken whatever liquidity that's out there. After liquidity comes credit crunch. If you have both, then it's a bigger thing. It becomes a worry, Julie, doesn't it? For, not just for it becomes a, a concern, not just for the lender, the banks that may not be uh, as inclined to lend, but also for potential borrowers who may be more nervous about taking on an obligation at a higher interest rate, by the way. Yeah, not just consumers, right? But companies too. Yes. The, you know, the willingness to actually borrow is probably starting to soften. We're starting to see some indications that CapEx is also starting to soften. And so that has a ripple effect through the rest of the economy. I, you know, I agree that this shock does provide some deflationary pressure. The problem is, is it's, pro it's going to take time for us to really know if that's happened. And I think that this Fed is still very focused on being tough on inflation more than you know, being able to anticipate where it's going to go, probably because no one knows where it's going to go. Let's talk about what's going to come in the next couple of weeks, and that is the beginning of earnings season. I mean, we're, we're a few days away from the end of the first quarter. Are corporate profits going to go into quote, a profit recession. Well, that's Mike Wilson's call from Morgan Stanley. He's yeah. been making it, um, you know, for months now. And, and again, I think that what's Eventually, you might be right. right? Well, yeah. I, well, listen, I mean, the truth is, is that we have seen earnings estimates come down. They come down quarter by quarter. And, you know, um, over the last year or so, we never really had that bloodletting for 2023, where you just take down the out year, you get expectations low enough. Um, we haven't had that yet. And so one of the things I think is interesting, when you think about a lot of the major tech companies, which are huge contributors to S&P earnings, we're still consensus Census estimates has S&P earnings up high single digits for 2023. This is in a much higher rate environment than we were in for all of 2022. Um, growth is likely to be slower. We have geopolitical headwinds. We still have inflation readings at very high levels historically, even though they've come down a bit. All of those things are going to be headwinds to earnings. So at some point, it's my view that in the next few months or so, we're going to have some major um, tech companies likely guide down. They've been cutting jobs. They've been cutting costs, which is capex and that sort of 
everything. Sooner or later, they're going to actually have to say, we're taking the estimates down. And the other thing is talking about being off size. If you look at consensus estimates for strategists for S&P 500 price from now, okay, forget earnings, it's up like 17%. I think I read that on FactSet on Friday. So that's expecting, you know, we're already up 4% in the year right here, but the next year out, expectations are just really high on earnings and also But when you see the tech companies, the disconnect is the stock market. Because when they announce layoffs, the stock actually runs. So it's been rewarded. And then with the latest bank crisis, we've seen people run into tech companies. They have the balance sheets. They have the stability. So does that last? Or is it a reversion off of that move? Yeah, does that do the tech companies represent stability and safety, right? I mean, is that really what, what's going on here? I think I mean some if of the you big look ones? at the balance sheet, right? For the mm-hmm. you know, the metas of the world, Google and I mean that there that is stability to me. Although I think this rotation that has been so strong in, I think, is starting to go the other way. But I, I'm not quite as negative as Dan. I feel like it's, some wait, of the there's things, no one. Uh, who's there's that? no that's one. That's who's true. Who's in the market? Other than that, I'm like Rosie yeah. over here. You know what I mean? Like. Um, it's, you know, I think some of the supply chain issues have abated, so that helps on the cost front. Um, the dollar was a very big headwind, and it has round-tripped over the last year. So that's helpful a little, a little bit. Um, and I also think it's sort of, you know, we talk about the market as a monolith, but it's not. There's a lot of different Different and, and, uh, flavors. And, and Tyler, mm-hmm. just before you get to Julie, on, yeah. on this, even Mike Wilson, who's been you know super bearish on the overall market, has said that if the market can navigate through June, he thinks that we've avoided something. But he said that prior to the latest banking crisis. Yeah, and the one thing is about these big tech names, and you call them stability or, or whatever. And listen, they are stable. They are quality. These have great managements. The, most of them have monopolies. They have these huge balance sheets, yep. right? They're not yep. dependent on the yep. debt markets the way a lot of others were. But look at an Apple. What's happened in this last month or so, you've seen multiple expansion when you see actually declining or expecting declining metrics, right? Because we had that huge pull forward in 2021. And so that's starting to come down. Apple's trading at about 26 and a half times this year's expected earnings only expected to grow mid single digits that's probably relative to its own growth is as expensive it's been in 10 years or so okay mm-hmm. so like that's one of the disconnects by having too much crowding in some of these big safe names julie before i bring you back in i am going to bring in tony dwyer uh to kick around these topics and more uh we'll talk a little fed as well uh tony is chief market strategist at canaccord genuity tony welcome good to have you with us I'll just get your reaction to what what we've been talking about here uh, profit Recession, the idea that that, that the country is uh, that the country and maybe the global economy is go, is likely to go into a recession uh, by the time the leaves turn color. Well, if you, if you look at any of the the leading indicators, I'll, I'll give you three, Tyler, that I've talked to on the show before. Anytime that the yield curve inversions have hit this percentage, ninety three percent of possible yield curves were inverted. And I think we talk about that like it's some kind of like mysterious thing. Why would a lending institution lend money to lose money? When short rates are higher than long rates, that's what happens. So that that has always led to a recession. In addition, you've got the conference board leading economic indicators have always, you've had a recession each time they've been at the current level. I went back and I looked at any time you've had a soft landing, whether it be 2016, 17, uh, 1995, 96, or even 1966, 67, the conference board leading economic indicators were nowhere near where they are today. And then and then lastly, now everybody's kind of picking up on it. I think I talked to it the last time I was on the show is that lending standards were tight going into the banking issue, Tyler. The Fed raised rates in a historic way, the fastest 
tightening cycle in history into a generationally levered system. Of course it was going to break. Something's going to break. That can't, especially when it's that quick, it can't work that way. So lending standards were already tight, and now they're going to tighten further. So if you put the banking issues up on the shelf behind me um, and just think about what it means to money, it's hard to use money when you don't have access to it. Julie, you want I mean, to jump this, in with a question? Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, are there any red herrings of data that you think investors are paying way too much attention to and that they should be focusing on something else in order to really ascertain which direction the economy is going? That's a great question, Julie. I, I think unemployment is the number one focus. Inflation is not the issue anymore. I, I'm with Karen and, and everybody else. If you're going to go into recession, the inf looking at inflation is behind us. Um, if you look at the rule that some like, some don't, but it's uh, it seems to have always worked. It's when you have th the three-month average of unemployment, if it gets to 50 basis points above the cycle low, which means if you average 3.9% over three months, you're in a recession. We're great at talking about things like it's past tense because we do historical studies. In real time, that's one of the ways you can see. And also, the initial rate cut, not like I almost said I, the initial rate cut is typically a sell signal, not a buy signal. They do it because the unemployment rate is rising and the and credit and financial conditions have tightened. So you're looking for much more than that. And you can see that through a very sharp steepening of the yield curve, not an inversion. So let's, I want to get uh, your, your explanation for why you say um, you expect the S&P to test its October lows by midsummer. And could it go beyond that? Well, it'd be historically unique not to from two fronts, Tyler. So the first one is the S&P 500 since 1957, when it became a 500 stock index, has never made the low when it's down 19 percent in a cycle. When it's ever been down 19 percent, it's never made the low, the absolute low of that bear market prior to a peak in the two year yield. So that just happened and I kind of tried, literally two and a half weeks ago. Um, so that would mean it would be the first time that if October is the low that that would happen, number one. And number two, if we do go into a recession, again, all the data points in that direction. Now people are kind of jumping on board with that. Um, if you do go into a recession, the S&P 500, again, in the same time frame since 1957, has never made the low before you even enter the recession. So it typically happens about 23 weeks in. So that means that, you know, one way or another, we're going to go back to that October low. And I sound so negative. I know Dan does and, and a bunch of us are. And that that's what happens at the last push lower. You, you start out with good news is bad news because it means the Fed's going to be tight. Then bad news is good news means the Fed can take their foot off the throat of the market. When bad news becomes bad news, that's that push lower that you want to be in a position to attack. So our framework is to be light and tight. Lighten exposure, in other words, have more cash than you would normally have, but not get too defensively positioned because it's hard to get really aggressive as the market's swooning if you're already betting that way. So if I hear you right, this 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 last move lower is actually going to be good news. Am That's I right? That's the time. That's always the time. We're a year and a half into this, right? And I'm, I'm, I, I heard um, uh, somebody on, on uh, the 4 o'clock show say that... Um, She's been bearish for it gets old to be bearish for a year. You want to get and that's the hardest time is when right. when you're heading into a recession and the market's swooning. But that's typically the right time.
All right, Tony, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold that light and tight, which has never been used to describe me. But uh, by the way, thank you. Thank you very much for being with us. We're going to trade your thoughts here just a little bit. Julie, your, your reactions to uh, and what would you what do I do now, Julie, with with what I've just learned? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot to be said for, for having a little bit of, of uh, dry powder available to you. But I, I think what's really important is you need to be very choosy. You need to be very thoughtful about what you're exposed to. You know, we can sit here and say tech is a monolith, but some of these tech businesses, they may have a monopoly, but, you know, they can still feel earnings declines if the consumer rolls over. And so I think you really have to think about who the end user is. Something like healthcare to me makes more sense in the sense that that's probably going to continue even in a decline. We're going to take a pause here and get a news alert on Lyft. We've been talking about it uh, earlier this hour. Shares are higher after that ride-sharing company announced a leadership change. Deirdre Bosa has the details. Hi, Deirdre. Tyler, shares are higher, although they have come off the after-hours high. They were up more than 4%. And this as the co-founders of the ride-sharing company, Logan Green and John Zimmer, step back from the day-to-day -day operations. They are handing over the CEO reins to David Risher. He has had management positions at Amazon and Microsoft. But for the more than the last decade, he's actually been running a nonprofit. So he is going to have to come in and turn around a company that has really fallen behind the number one ride-sharing player, and that is Uber. Um, this is a company that has also been trying to get more profitable over the years. It emerged out of the pandemic weaker than it was before. If we look at some of the third-party data in terms of market share, Uber now commands about 74%. Lyft's market share has fallen to 26% from 38% from the beginning of the pandemic. So clearly there is a lot of work to be done here, Tyler. And we will be talking to Mr. Risher in about 15 minutes on your show. So we'll get some more answers from him. Look forward to that. Thank you, Deirdre. Let's trade this stock. Uh, Karen, any thoughts on Lyft? You know, I thought Lyft had sort of been turning the corner. And then that last quarter was so bad. And it was particularly bad in light of Uber really seeming to, you know, have sort of Gotten their, gotten their act together in a big way and becoming positive. And, and also, I think that, um, I don't know, I, I feel like I liked at first Lyft's being only a ride-sharing program and Uber was more noisy, other things, freight, mm -hmm. delivery, whatever, and uh, that turned out to be the right way to go. Lyft was one of your, you have an acronym. Yeah, totally. well, I, you, look, at, look at you doing I your homework, Tyler. Magic in no, this. I, so I threw, yeah. I threw Lyft and uh, Snap. Look, you picked that acronym when you were 14 years old. Yeah. It looks, like yeah. a, it looks, like, it looks like an eye chart. Exactly. No, but, but one of the things that I think is interesting, I, I think there's going to be strategic M&A towards the end of this year. And I think names like Lyft um, and Snap probably fit that. When you think about this thing as less than a $3 billion enterprise value, half of their market cap is in cash. And I think the choice of a CEO who's been in a nonprofit for 10 years for a company that's never turned a gap profit that makes a lot of sense may, to yeah, me right so, so, so I mean, when, when you think about it, but like think about that rounding error of a number on any sort of potential choir three billion enterprise value okay yeah. and when you think of that they still have 25 percent of north american ride share they have tons of data a lot of these um autonomous fleets are going to be working within this sort of business model going forward so to me I think it makes a lot of sense here, but the Karen's point, that was a bad quarter, but maybe it was like a, a kitchen sink. And this guy coming in is probably going to kitchen sink. The, the only issue that you have really quick is with Uber. 
where you had mentioned before they have 76% market share in, in the U.S. That's up from 62%. So Deirdre mentioned where Lyft Lost is share. now down. They're, they're going in the opposite directions. And Uber internationally gets 40% of revenues from overseas. Yeah. So that's a hard thing to kind of, you know, start gobbling up the giant when you're fighting from got his work uh, cut out for on the hill. Clearly got his work cut out for him. And we'll hear from him, Mr. Risher, in just a few moments' time. Meantime, coming up, high energy trading, oil and energy stocks getting a bounce today. But can the crude come, come back continue? We will debate that one next on Fast Money. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently, and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Crude oil jumping to uh, kick off the week after Iraq was forced to halt production of 450,000 barrels a day in its Kurdistan region. A calming in the global banking system also adding to oil's gains today. Energy stocks coming along for the ride for the most part. Here's some of today's big winners. SLB, Hess, Targa Resources, Marathon, uh, and Halliburton all moving higher and by significant amounts there. Uh, Steve, let me, let me start with you. you. When oil was 120, you said you saw it coming down into the mid-60s. It did. It's bounced. It's a little higher. What do you see next? I, I, don't think, I think this could be the year where you see the actual commodity rally and you see the uh, energy stocks sell off. So we've had peaks, whether it's a... Explain that. So you have a large integrated name like an ExxonMobil or a Chevron. If you look at the chart, they've all rolled over in, in anticipation of this run-up where they are very efficient. They're, they, no one's battling with, I think it's $40 a barrel. There's, everyone's still making money. No one's, no one's saying that they're not efficient in the way they run their business. It was just preloaded now. Everyone got so far ahead of the trade. Now they have to catch up and reverse it. So you could see the actual commodity start to bounce, even though Saudi Arabia said that the that the market is oversupplied on oil. What I think is going to happen is we are going to replenish the SPR. That's going to be a stabilizing force. That puts that a floor market. under the price, puts a floor under the price. And you could. So I think we're range bound. I don't think we're going to see those days where it's up to one hundred and twenty anymore. But you could see 70 or 65 to 100. And that could be a range for the year with all of the energy stocks selling off. Anyone else want to jump in here? Yeah, I'll just say this. I think we talked about in the fall. Remember that Chevron buyback? It was some, like, ridiculous number. Um, yeah. And we were all like, well, that's it. You know, they said they don't ring the bell at the top. I mean, that literally was it. And the XLE, the ETF, the tracks, the large integrated in Chevron and Exxon make up, what, like 35 40% mm-hmm. or something like that. That's when that period started rolling over a little bit. I think it's also interesting that the zero COVID thing was an about face in a very short period of time. And I think people got kind of ex- um, excited about that as they thought about just demand for the commodity. And it really happened. 
hasn't happened. I mean, when you think about that, and so I think for like some investors to get their arms around the fact that these things that we universally believe that should happen, sometimes they don't in markets. And I think energy is one of those places you have to be really careful about because like me, I don't understand the inner workings of it, which Steve just said, I'm going to have to go watch the, the, the thing again and, and kind of think about it a little bit because you can always make a good valuation case for the stocks, always. that sort of thing. I just never know how they're going to react relative to the commodity. All right, we're going to take a quick break here. Coming up, amid shifting political alliances, Chinese officials are meeting with U.S. CEOs like Apple's Tim Cook to reassure them that business relationships remain steady as they go. But is there more to this charm offensive? And later, Lyft announcing a new CEO less than an hour ago, and we've got an exclusive interview with the incoming chief executive, David Risher. Fast Money returns in two minutes. podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money, uh, everybody. We want to go back to the leadership change over at Lyft. And Deidre Bosa is joining us with the incoming CEO. Deidre. Yes, indeed. I've got David Risher here with me. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Deidre, thanks. Is this your first day on the job? When do you officially take over? <laughs> I don't actually start for another couple weeks. So okay. I'm, I'm in the honeymoon period. Okay. And Be I, gentle. Right. But you have been a board <laughs> member, so you do have some experience with this company. Yeah. What is your first move then in a few weeks as CEO of Lyft? Well, I mean, that's a great question. Look, I come from the Amazon world of customer obsession. And so my first and fo- you know, only real focus at the beginning is make sure we are focusing 100% on the customer. Pick them up on time, drop them off where they want to go, make sure we're price competitive, and make sure the team's really excited about the next chapter. Right. Now, you were with Amazon, though, more than a decade ago. Yeah. What makes you the right person for this job, especially since you've been out of Wall Street, out of the public eye, running a nonprofit for the last 10 years? Sure. So let's look back real fast. Microsoft, for a bunch of time, I really learned how to compete. Frankly, Microsoft's very competitive in the 90s. Amazon, after that, really learned how to focus on the customer. Very, very focused. And Jeff was sincere about that. And then the nonprofit world, you do more with less. That's the whole thing. And I think people misunderstand that. Nonprofits have to take a small amount of money and solve some of the world's big problems. And we're going to do that at Lyft, too. So what lessons do you take from that? What is your first move as CEO? I know you outlined sort of your objectives, but what's the very first thing you do? Yeah, well, first thing, look, is get the team excited. I mean, you're only as good as your team, and that's just the bottom line. But the second thing is, as I say, make sure that our customers, our riders, and our drivers are feeling like they have a great experience with us. And if we do that, everything else will fall. How do you do that? Do you change the way the app works? Do you expand? What kind of sort of changes within the company itself do you make? Yeah, I think you start by making sure you're priced competitively. Okay. At the beginning, if people are looking at both apps and we're not winning or at least matching, I think we got a problem. 
that sounds like the price wars are going to recontinue. And I wonder, wow. I mean, investors are going to want to see a greater emphasis on profitability. But at yeah. the same time, Lyft has been losing market share. So what is your priority? Is it profitability or is it winning back market share? Yeah, you don't get to choose one of the two of those. You just do. But There's, you have to. Well, no, not so much, because as you drive volume, assuming the economics super quickly are, every time a person takes a ride, we make a little money, right? So we got to make sure that we get people taking a lot of rides so we can make a lot more money. And then we got to make sure that our cost position is appropriate so that over time we can drop that to the bottom line. So how can you have both of those then if you're trying to, I guess, cut costs for customers, trying to make it more competitive, mm. but you're also trying to cut costs for investors and mm -hmm. make Lyft as a company more efficient? Yeah, yeah. Stay tuned. That'll, Stay be, tuned. that'll be once I start. Okay, let me ask you another question. If you cannot turn the business around, if Lyft continues to stay where it is or lose even more market share, is merging with another company an option? It's not on my mind right now, to be honest. But I, I, I would step back. I think there is a really strong position, to, uh, case to be made, for a really strong number two. You look at any market that's got you know, a couple competitors in it, you really want both of them to be strong. And I think that's where we're going to go. So you said good position to be in number two. Do you try to be number one? Yeah, if you're lucky, you can get there. But at least you start by recognizing that that's probably a better place over time. <laughs> okay. But, you know, start from being a strong number two. It's okay. And I know that the co-founders, John Zimmer, Logan Green, they're going to be taking a step for, back from the day-to-day -day operations. Um, will you be able to operate independently or will they still be involved? Well, no, for sure I'll be able to operate independently. They'll be on the board. And like any board member, you know, they'll have their, uh, as they say, nose in but hands off. But they've given me full reins and I can feel that already. Will they still have voting control of the company? Um, we're not changing the structure of the company. Okay. Why do you think they chose you for this job? <laughs> You'll have to ask them for that. But I do think it's the combination of customer obsession first and then a really strong operating environment. Look, even over the last 13 years with World Reader, we've built this organization where 21 million kids are reading. That's not easy to do. So I think they've looked at me and said, he can focus on the customer, he can build great things, and he can ultimately build a great business. Will you change the way that Lyft operates in terms of it's always been very focused on ride sharing and it's always been focused on North America? Do you have plans to look internationally or go into food delivery like your competitor? Uber? Yeah, uh, I'll answer that kind of carefully. Um, international, let's talk about that another time. I, again, I haven't even started on the job. Certainly focused on ride share for sure. Um, and I'm glad you bring up the food delivery guys, because I think that's a business model that I understand why they did it during the pandemic. But I think if you put a business model uh, and a customer experience in the same room and they fight with each other, you know, pizza boxes on the, in the same car as the people, you might end up having a problem. So we're going to look pretty closely at how they're doing, but that's not really going to be our focus. Our uh, focus on people. If investors take one thing away from this interview, you're first before you take over this position, would you say then that it's efficiency? Are you going to give the market efficiency when that's something that they're demanding from a lot of tech companies at the moment? What does that mean to you? Yeah, it means more efficiency for sure, but not just for the sake of efficiency, efficiency for the sake of getting a product, a service that our customers really love. That's our focus. Okay. David, thanks for chatting with us. Oh, Deidre, I had a good time. We thanks look so much. forward to seeing what you do. Thank you. Appreciate that. Tyler, back over to you. All right, Deidre, thank you very much. And Mr. Risher, thank you for joining us uh, tonight. Let's kick it around a little bit. Julie, let me start with you. It, it sounded to me as though his key competitive um, impulse is to compete on price. Is that a winner? Yeah, I mean, it can be a winner, right? And it was a winner at, at a certain point in time. But you have to think about these two businesses, Uber and Lyft. You know, we all benefited as consumers. But the, the fact of the matter is the only way the economics of that work is if VCs are funding it, 
you know, endlessly. And that's not, no longer the case. And at a certain point, investors want to see profitability. And I'm still not sure I understand the rideshare business model where it can actually make money if it's only charging me $8 to get from point A to point B. So that's the part is I continue to wonder about this business model overall. Steve, yeah, I saw you nodding there. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that's a good point that Julie makes. I, I always think it's a race to zero whenever you whenever you try to fight over price. Obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not saying they're going to zero, but when you look at the when I heard that interview, he's going to need a little time to get up to speed on whatever it is that he's going to do. Is it is it going to be, as Deirdre said, international? Is it going to be food delivery? It seems as though he's going to take a look at a lot of things before he makes up his mind, which means that investors are going to take a look at a lot of things before they buy the stock. I think he's got it's a, it's a tough thing how you differentiate yourself in this sort of highly commoditized space. You've got a car service. You've got a, a leading competitor whose name has become the verb in the space. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm going to Uber somewhere. I'm not. You use that. He's got his he's got he's got an image issue. He's got a price issue that he's got to solve to differentiate himself from the from the market leader. Yes, definitely. I also wonder how did this come about? Right. What how is it that did that he became the CEO, I think after that last quarter, maybe the board decided, all right, we got to see if we need to change it. Who else, who else was interviewed for the job? Yeah. I'm curious, how did this all come about? Yeah. Listen, he makes a strong case for, they're in any business in, in the US here. No, well, we need strong competitors. It's good for consumers, it's good for competition, it's good for innovation, right? So these guys are a much smaller competitor to a behemoth, to somebody who basically has monopoly. And so if they can compete on price a little bit, they can get back some market share, they can maybe kind of find some better um, efficiencies, find some markets where the unique economics make more sense. I mean, this is how a guy like this succeeds. And I'll just tell you, over the course of my career looking at some of these turnaround situations, he's going to have a honeymoon period for a bit. The stock might go lower. They might kitchen sink expectations for the balance of the year, but it could set up as a uh, as a good long here. Am I wrong? But do some of the drivers drive for both of those companies? Yeah, they do. Yes. A lot of them do. A lot, yes. I thought a lot of them do, right? Yeah. So anyhow, just a thought. All right, coming up, <laughs> an apple a day keeps China in business. The latest out of the China Development Forum and why Tim Cook doesn't seem to be facing much criticism for the trip. Far from it. The details next. And options traders gearing up for Micron earnings tomorrow. How they're playing the name when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. A slew of headlines over the weekend caught our attention. First, Honduras taking a pro-China stance, establishing diplomatic ties with Beijing at the expense of Taiwan. Then there's Saudi Aramco announcing two multi-billion dollar crude oil investment deals with China. And Alibaba founder Jack Ma making an appearance in the country after nearly a year abroad. All this as Chinese officials look to reassure global execs that the country is open for business. CNBC's Eunice Yoon has the details from the China Development Forum. Tyler, Beijing wants American CEOs to hear the message that China welcomes international business. President Xi Jinping's chief of staff read out a letter from his boss attempting to reassure the foreign audience that President Xi is dedicated to an open China. In public, the bosses from Apple, Qualcomm, Pfizer, P&G and Bridgewater, among others, expressed their support for China's growth. 
Tim Cook said at a side session that Apple and China have had a symbiotic kind of relationship. Pfizer's Albert Burla told me the drug giant was aligned with China's Healthy 2030 initiative and would contribute as much as it could. But the forum couldn't escape worries over the souring U.S.-China relationship. The mood among the attendants was very pessimistic over geopolitical concerns, especially between the U.S. and China, as well as the uncertain business climate. The due diligence firm, the Mintz Group, said that five of its employees were detained by Chinese authorities. Tyler? Thank you very much, Eunice. Let's bring in CNBC contributor and Longview Global's Dewardrick McNeil. He is the firm's managing director and senior policy analyst. What do you make of what's been going on in China generally, but specifically with the, with the put in context, uh, this China Development Forum and the presence of U.S. executives there? Good evening, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Look, I think broadly speaking, post-National People's Congress, we're trying to see whether or not Xi Jinping is going to be able to really focus on security, which we think is what his his real focus is, while also trying uh, to bring the economy back to some uh, level of stability. And the verdict is still out on whether or not he can do both of those things simultaneously. With respect to China Development uh, Forum, to Eunice's point, it's a much more muted affair this year, but it is notable who is in attendance, Tyler. And most of the CEOs that are there uh, have a real heavy reliance on the Chinese market uh, to sell their goods and services, or they are really looking to push China forward with the opening and developing of its financial services sector, so wealth and, and asset managers. And so far, most of them seem to think that they can manage the geopolitical risk as well as the potential reputational risk uh, by being there uh, in China, Tyler. And if I were grading visits mm -hmm. by CEOs, I would have to give Tim Cook, Apple's CEO, an A-plus on the way he's handled his visits. He's done nothing uh, to dissuade the U.S. from believing that he's going to de-risk his supply chain and look to manufacture some stuff outside of China, while, in his words, continuing that symbiotic relationship that he's had uh, with China in the past, going into the future. So yeah, I, we will see how this all plays out. It's he, a dance that both sides know that they have. To he's do in time. an amazing position because, number one, he's got a company that derives, I think it's 20 percent of its revenues from from retail sales in China. Number one. Number two, they are the biggest manufacturer of his of his flagship product. So he's he and yet he's running a, a, a U.S. company at a time when U.S.-China relationships uh, a relationship has probably never been this fraught, at least in a generation. Yeah, you're right about this, Tyler. Look, he's been doing all the right things with respect to his Chinese customer, visiting uh, stores and taking selfies and all the things that he needs to do to really keep uh, that iPhone popping in China the way that it mm -hmm. is. But to your point, uh, it's a delicate balancing act. But he is showing what perhaps the China plus it's one strategy true. can look like. And so we'll see how it goes in the end. But so far, he's managed to, to walk this tightrope. Julie, you look like you're trying to get my attention. Did you want to ask a question or jump in? No, I was, I was curious how, what you think that um, what kind of groundwork Tim is trying to put down in terms of being able to you know, drive more with the consumer, but also continue to have strong supply chain relationships in China. Well, I think this is really about looking at where he can get the Chinese to help solidify the supply chain in China. But still, he is very intent on de-risking 
that supply chain as much as possible, India, Southeast Asia, other places. So again, what we're seeing, I, I think, is a strategy here of trying to reassure China while also uh, trying to de-risk. And again, I don't know if it's going to be successful in the long term, but it certainly seems like his primary play on this visit. Dr. Wardrick, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, we uh, are always grateful and uh, you provide great insights. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Wardrick McNeil. Let's trade this one. How investable is China? It depends on what your timeline, I hate to sound very cliche on this, but it depends on what your timeline is. And and Dan brought it up before, the zero COVID policy. Everyone thought it was going to be gangbusters once they got back at it. We haven't seen that. And it seems as though China could turn the spigot on and off whenever they want. So I don't think it's for the faint of heart to put money into Chinese markets right now. I'd rather be with things that have a pseudo dependency on China versus a direct dependency. If I were persuaded that I really wanted to be in China, what's the best way to do it? Is it a fund? Is it an ETF? What, how would you do it? How would you tell people to do it? I would, do, I would just go, yes, with ETF, because, I mean, who knows who's the actual target, right? Sometimes they just target one particular company to send a message to other. You want to take that risk or not? It's sort of to me like. In other words, if I were to buy a a bite dance or a Baba or something like that. Right. I'm 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 hung out there if China decides to target them. Right. But if so safety in numbers. Yes. All right. Let's take a quick break. Micron earnings are on deck and the chip stock is up nearly 20 percent this year. But could those gains be in danger? The options action on the name next when we return in two minutes. Welcome back to Fast Money, everybody. Micron shares dropping ahead of the chipmaker's earnings report tomorrow. One options trader betting the stock could wipe out all its gains for the year within the next couple of months. Mike Coe has the action. Mike, explain it to us. Yeah, so Micron traded about 1.4 times its average daily options volume today ahead of earnings. Right now, the options market implying a move of about 6.5% by the end of the week after they report that's slightly larger than the 5.5% or so that the company has averaged over the last eight reported quarters. The largest single trade we saw was a purchase of 1,924 of the May 52.5 puts. Buyer paid $1.45. Buyer of those puts is risking about $280,000 on a bet that is going to fall below that 52.5 strike price by at least the $1.45 they paid. That would be targeting those lows that we saw back in December by May expiration. I, for one, am hoping this is only a hedge, though, because we own Micron in our event fund. All right. There, that's a, that is a bearish bet on that company. Mike, thank you very much. And for more Options Action, be sure, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Coming up, some aches in the office space. What pain in the sector could mean for banks holding their loans? The details when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Commercial real estate stocks taking a hit this year as higher interest rates weigh on borrowing costs. So what does the office sector pain mean for already stressed banks that hold their loans? Diana Olick has the data. What can you tell us, Di? Hey, Ty. Yeah, office is one of the roughest sectors because return to work is, of course, not 100 percent. 
Most commercial real estate has dropped in value simply because higher interest rates make borrowing costs higher, thereby limiting investors' abilities to make deals. Now, FDIC-insured banks hold the largest share of CRE mortgages at 39% or $1.7 trillion. 13% is in CMBS. But this year and next, there is a huge pipeline of commercial mortgages hitting maturity that need to be refinanced. The big concern, of course, is office. Of the $270 billion of bank-held CRE loans maturing this year, about 80 billion or 30% are on office properties. That's according to TREP. So property owners who need to refi are up against higher borrowing costs and lower property values. Now, one rescue strategy that has been gaining some steam is office conversion to multifamily, like at this former DC office building being converted by Philadelphia-based developer Post Brothers. Even they admit, though, it will not save the sector. 30% of the office stock in cities in the United States, round numbers, is obsolete, but maybe only 30% of that works as a, as a conversion of the existing structure to multifamily. So um, there's, a, there's a huge amount of office space that's obsolete and doesn't have another use for the, for the building as it's built. Because of lower property values and the current bank stress, several experts I've spoken with say deal-making has essentially ground to a halt and the CMBS market is largely shut down. A data expert at TREP, Manus Clancy, told me there is no capital out there for offices. Tyler. All right, Diana, thanks very much. Karen, this, this is a struggling sector. You've got leases coming up, as she just pointed out. You've got loans that are going to need to be rolled over. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a perfect uh, negative storm. Right, plus rates. Having plus rates so much, going up. Right, plus credit contraction. I mean, it's a perfect, I don't know, we haven't seen storms like, even 08 was different than this in that, I mean, cap rates are already so much higher, so values are lower, and you put in the work from home, I mean, yeah, it's and the, really yeah, the, quite a mixture of everything that the can go tenants wrong. aren't going to want to come back necessarily and rent the same amount of square footage, right? What, I, what? I mean, I think I, saw, I heard a stat that it's 50% of the people are back to actual physical work, and that's probably going to stay a little, a little, you know, static. But there's zero appetite for office. One trillion in commercial loans that is, is resetting, as Diana said. Banks are not giving out any, any more loans and quality of life. So I don't see how this isn't a perfect storm. And is it then the next shoe to drop for the banking system? Right. So if the big issue is duration mismatch, right, because of this rate move, and if we just, Diana just mentioned how much of that commercial real estate <clears throat> debt is on these regional banks' balance sheets, right, or, or, or what they hold, right, that they have written, I mean, the next thing to happen is defaults, and we're already starting to see it. And if you look at some of these office REITs, I mean, they look like they are in the worst of any storm. They look like 2008, 2009 sort of stuff. And so that's one of the things, if you go back to the, the financial crisis playbook, you got to extend this thing because it's not just one cockroach in the wall there. All right. Nice image to leave it. Up next, your final trades. We'll be right back. Man, this hour goes fast. It's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Julie, you get to go first. Thank you. I'm still too chicken to own the regional banks, but software providers that help them compete against the big providers, like you know, I think are interesting. All right, uh, Steve. UNH is really, really trying to make a move. It's in my just trade, just so you know. That's my acronym. It's the U in my just trade. I'm hoping that this is the real deal, UNH. All right, Karen. 
Yes. Uh, have yes. a great run. And I yes. like it, but Meta, I forgot there for like a half second. What was my final trade? It is sell some upside calls against Meta. Huge run. I still like it, but too much, too fast. Bring it home for us. Hey, as Guy would say, CBC yeah. Royalty, thanks for thanks hey, your thanks time. Thanks for having um, me, guys. SMH. Semis, that'd be a seller into my country. Be a seller into that number. All right, folks, thanks for watching Fast Money, Mad Money, right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.